Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast that's all about hitting rewind on the bands and scenes that we love. I'm Rick Martin and this, my co-host, is Sarah Jane Kemp. Hey up, how's it going? Yeah, I'm okay. What, what's, what's, with, what's with the accent all of a sudden? Well, I am technic- well, I'm technically from the Midlands, Rick, but I'd say, I'd say I'm a northerner. I've lived in London for 15 years, but... We've got a bit of a northern guest on the show today, so I'm channeling my inner northern, as I think you were when you interviewed this person today, weren't you? I was waiting to, to see how you'd reference this. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I do speak with a different... I, I don't know what my accent is these days, because I've been living in London for so long, but I definitely say bath, grass and path, and uh, I do love a bit of the... Hey up, how are you doing? I mean, hey up, Ducky. I mean, ultimately, we know that your accent has changed, because on the last series, we played out a clip of you on Live and Kicking, when you sounded proper Midlands. Very, very Nottingham, yeah. I was about eight, I can't remember how old I was. I was very young, so I've had it kind of brushed out. People from London, people in London speak all sorts of different um, accents, so... You've been hit with the Cockney stick, is that... Hit with the Cockney stick? No, definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) I know that for sure. Um, But yeah, how's your week been, Rick? Yeah, all good. Um, What can I talk about this week? So I, I mean, this is away from music and everything. Obviously, as I mentioned on the last podcast, became a father again for the fourth time a couple of months ago, and I had my first solo day with uh, with Mabel, my daughter, as in was allowed to. Oh yeah, no, sorry, that's not. No, Mabel, the child, and was allowed to look after for a few hours on my own. Allowed. Allowed, What did you do? Uh, mainly napped, to be honest, and I fell asleep oh, as well. Nice. So that must be the nice thing about having a newborn. I don't have any kids, but I can imagine if you do and you, they nap, that's when you need to sleep, isn't it? Because otherwise, you could be in trouble at, at night. But anyway, that's good to hear. Um, what have I been up to? I know you haven't asked me, but I'm going to tell you anyway because you probably were about to ask me. Um, I have been. Um, I've been at a couple of friends' birthdays actually. Went to the new Standard Hotel in London. They do a really amazing pub quiz on a Tuesday night. Um, this one was about the nineties. We won. We actually won. Wow. Um, I went to one a couple of weeks ago as well, and it was all about uh, food. As we all know, it's my other passion in life. So I think we we came about second in that one. So doing pretty well at the standard hotel pub quizzes. Um, what was the trickiest question in the nineties quiz? I'm keen to know. In the nineties, see if I know quiz, the answer. Oh, do you know what? I can't remember the questions off the top of my head, but there were loads that I didn't know the answer to. Though, but we all, it was good. We had a team of six of us, and I think we were all pretty well matched in terms of what we kind of the, the missing knowledge from one person someone else knew it so we're, we're pretty lucky on that but now I can't re- really remember a, an, an exact question one question that I do remember is um, Tamagotchi uh, obviously everyone had a Tamagotchi when we yeah. were when we were younger if you didn't why um, they they as they said well, I can't remember what the first thing they said was Tamagotchi means two things one thing and then what's the other thing and the other thing was egg so I think it was like animal and egg or something but that makes sense because you hatch it out of an egg at the start don't yeah, you but, uh, yeah but not many people got that I wouldn't have got that, but my I'd, friend I'd got completely it. forgotten about Tamagotchis. Yeah, anyway. Anyway, moving on from that. So this week's episode, as you've kind of teed up there a little bit, got a northern guest. Obviously, he's not on because he's northern. Um, <laughs> John McClure of uh, Revit and the Makers. And quite a timely interview, I guess, uh, recorded today, actually. So the day that their Best Of album has been recorded. So what better time to kind of look back over their career and their kind of nearly 15 I make it nearly 15 years in the music industry for well for John McClure particularly maybe not Reverend the makers themselves um yeah I think a really interesting uh, interview to play out it starts as a chat about 
um, the release of the best of, and then um, goes over some really kind of interesting anecdotes and and opinions on the state of music, I guess. So uh, well worth staying tuned for that later on. Definitely, I loved listening to it as well because straight after you did it, I obviously listened to it and I've got some of my own thoughts on what he said in his interview. So it's really really good. But also this week we've it's been quite a busy week musically in the music industry. So the Mercury Prize happened last night. Yeah. Um. So we were both kind of I was I'd actually just kind of crawled into bed. I had a, a meeting last night, so crawled into bed and was watching 13 Reasons Why on Netflix, embarrassingly, um, and remembered that it was on. Uh, so kind of looked, I know we've been put, talking about it earlier in the evening, but looked at my phone and uh, three minutes previously, Dave had won. So we talked about our predictions last week and neither of us predicted that Dave would win, did we? Well, I did semi-reference that I thought this was kind of a year for hip-hop, so I kind of Yeah, but however, closed in on what that. happened, Rick? You, you put bets on how many people and you didn't put a bet on Dave, so... Yeah, well, last, I, 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 I quite enjoyed... You lost enjoy, five quid, yeah, didn't I you? Lost, You're I, really just d- d- gutted, aren't you? Five, I, what I often do with betting, and this is, um, you know, gambleaware.co.uk for, for the facts, <laughs> um, is I, I'm not one of those big gamblers. I put five quid in and then I tend to do either accumulators or... Kind of, sp- you, you know, what you call it spread betting. It's kind of where you spread your money out into. That, that's not real spread betting. Real spread betting is like. I you, mean, you, you're talking gobbledygook to me. You know, I've never put a better algorithms in that. But anyway, yeah, I put a pound on um, Anna Calvi because I thought, how can I not? That was the one that I said should wanted, yeah. should win. Didn't think would win, but should win. Uh, Idols, who I thought would win because I do think that's kind of the sound of now, as discussed last week. Little Sims, because that's who you said you thought was going to win, and therefore I'd probably buy you a drink with the winnings. <laughs> and then Slow Tie, just to cover me to get my money back, because that was like a nine to four, so I'd have got nearly on my money back if he'd have won. And Black Midi is a bit of like an outlier, as a what if they give it to someone totally unexpected. And then Dave won. So you bet on five, <laughs> and you're still trying to say that you thought Dave might win. Yeah, I well, think yeah. You might. He'd, be he'd have been my sixth telling choice. Telling a fib. Telling a fib. Um, but yeah, well done, Dave. Um, well, well, very well deserved. And uh, we should probably we should probably both have a listen to that album, and we can talk about it on another episode. Yeah, sounds good to me. And then another big album's out today. Liam Gallagher's second solo album, Why Me, Why Not? Indeed. So I was I was meant to listen to this on the way into work, wasn't I, Rick? But I got sidetracked with The Reverend and the Makers Best Of, so I haven't actually had a chance to listen to this yet. Very um, one-track mind, haven't you? You can't listen to two things at once. Oh, can you? Yeah, one in one ear, one in the other. <laughs> oh, my God, imagine that. It'd sound wonderful. No, it would sound... Bloody awful. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll when I've got a chance. I'm pretty busy at the moment. I will listen to that probably on my cycle to the gym this evening. It is Friday night. and I'm going to the gym. How boring is that? Um, so I've got a question for you on that. Do you think, based on the fact that we are talking about factually good music on this series, do you think that that album's factually good? The album itself is not factually good. Now I can I'll, I'll give a little bit of background on why I think that in a second. Right. But Liam Gallagher is factually legendary. I'll say that. I mean okay. Liam Gallagher himself. And in terms of the album, I mean it's it's kind of as as ordered. I mean half of them have been put out as singles anyway, so I kind of knew half the record. I think all the stuff about there's very thinly veiled a lot of thinly veiled references to Noel in the lyrics. I'd say Noel and and kind of his kids and his family are pretty much the the kind of focus of the lyrics. But then I think. Musically, it's no secret. Well, in a good way or a bad way? I think the general consensus is he probably needs a new muse, uh, other than Noel, if you know what I mean. It's getting a little bit repetitive. And then musically, I mean, it's no secret that he's been working with a writing team to kind of bulk up the, the kind of both the sound of the album and kind of the hooks and the riffs. I don't imagine he writes a lot of the 
the the music and 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 in that sense it's it's quite a straightforward rock record i guess but not in a necessarily in a bad way you know you don't go into a liam gallagher album expecting to hear an experimental kind of radiohead uh, record and for what it is i think it will sound fantastic live i think it's going to sell shed loads and uh you know as i guess as a long time fan of oasis and and liam um it's it's just good to see him back on top back where he deserves to be as far as i'm concerned well that's very good to hear um i will get give it a listen and we can talk about it another time it's not really you know we've talked about this before it's not not really the kind of thing that i would put put on but i will just to just to see i'm always open to to expanding my horizons on that kind of stuff mm. so. it's too early for me to know whether it's one that i'll go back to or not i right. heard enough hooks in it that made me think yeah i'll probably listen to that again later today but you know will i be listening to it in a week's time it's you never know do you until yeah. about three or four listens of an yeah, album whether yeah. it's going into your heavy rotation well, that happened with arctic monkeys um for me um am i think it was i listened to it first time and thought oh, i don't really like this and then i think it's one of my most listened albums ever now it's one of those kind of growers i think um another thing i guess i wanted to mention on this episode which is quite funny i guess I thought I'd spread the love with this question around whether music can be factually good, and thought um, I've never. Have you ever used Quora before? I hate the word. I hate the I've, word. I've read. I've read Quora. It's like Quorn, isn't it? Quora. I've read Quora, as in sometimes you can Google a question, and a Quora page will come yeah. up. But no, I've, I've never. I've never joined that community. That community looks like it could be a bit of a hornet's nest. It's interesting to say the least. So I posted this question, and the very. Do you want to hear the very first response that we had? Oh, I can't wait. Um, Alex Johnston, um, guitar and bass, BA honors in music theory, tech, and musicology. Oh, he really knows what he's talking about. He though. really knows what he's talking about. So he said, "It's a stupid question, poorly phrased, and lacking precision." The intelligent question is, mm. "What do you mean when we say music is good?" For some reason, people don't ask that one nearly as often. And you know what my response was? Go on. Um, yeah, that's not really the question we're going for, but thanks for your uh, enlightening response anyway. <laughs> and I've never heard that from him. But I've already explained this. Music is just good when people listen to it and you go, yeah, that's just really good, and arguably that's really good. That's my definition of good, if it just sounds good. There's no argument that it's not good. Yeah, I mean, I think he was just trying to ask a different question, which I didn't really like anyway. And then I had another good one. So uh, this one was actually quite good. Um, Dave, shout out Dave, not the rapper. Um, He's a teacher in history, literature and piano. Uh, He says, I think you mean objectively good, though I'm not sure. It's a very old question. Some people believing um, we can establish criteria for what constitutes good music and therefore be able to evaluate music to sort out what's good from what isn't. And then he goes on to say... All I can say is good luck with that. <laughs> so, uh, oh, thank, thanks, Dave. He did actually go on. I won't bore you. Um, but some of the old, some of the I want to say some of the oldest questions are some of the best ones. Like, do ghosts exist? Did we really go to the moon? What's the meaning of life? And can music be factually good? I think maybe that's now entering that kind of pantheon of the eternal questions of life. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's it is an interesting question and one that I've, I'm going to continue asking pe- to people. Actually, one one second because I just. I saw something that I hadn't actually read before. I didn't get to the bottom of his post for some reason. And I quite like this. He says, of course, I do harbour some hope that people who listen to Ariana Grande, I 
bloody love Ariana Grande, were broad in their music taste to include a wider variety of music, including music that is not so immediately accessible as contemporary pop music. But the way to encourage people to do that is not to condemn what they listen to as crap. So I quite like that. I completely agree, and it's something we've touched on before around all of the um, the way we consume music now. And I think you touch on this in the interview with the Reverend in terms of the future of music a little bit as mm. well. So I think this guy, cheers Dave, he's onto something there, and maybe we'll do an episode on on this at some point. Yeah, we may maybe Dave and uh, what was the other guy called? Dave Alex and, or something. Uh, Alex. Yeah, maybe get Dave and Alex on the show, assuming they're not, you know, serial killers or something. Well, let's hope not. I did say Alex's surname, didn't I? So he might be able to get... Well, he's publicly, it's publicly available online, so whatever. Yeah, but I think let's get into the uh, main course of, of this meal of a podcast. I don't think I've ever used that as a reference I'm before. really loving the food references that you're giving to this podcast, um, Rick. But um, yeah, the, the Reverend album came out today, and I think you had a bit of a bright spark on the way into work, didn't you? Um, saying... You know, you'd been speaking to him previously about coming on to the uh, podcast in season one, and for whatever reason, it didn't quite happen. The stars didn't align as much, you know, probably as you were at an event where, where he was there, yeah, weren't you? And this, yeah, it, so it's just a bit harder at an event, isn't it? Well, the plan was to do this at Wheels and Fins Festival in Margate uh, last summer, and I think the thing that I overlooked was that it was run by the Libertines. And speaking to John afterwards, it was pretty chaotic scenes backstage. <laughs> and I think we'd have got a very imagine. good, yeah. a very good quality um, interview. And then obviously the series ended. And um, yeah, it's been kind of a long time ambition to get John on the podcast. You know, he's he's never short of a thing, the things to say and things to talk about. And I think that definitely comes through in the interview that we'll play out later. But yeah, uh, I think a very timely, very timely moment for them to be to be guests this week with the best of hitting the shelves yeah, today. Yeah, definitely. Well, you've you've known the band, and and one of the things that's kind of struck me in the interview, I won't give too much away, but he he credited you as personally as being. Um, kind of an in, uh, not an inspiration that's not the right word credited you for them being a, around and existing is that right that's uh, I mean I, I, th- I think he's being he's being very kind there I think as I say and this again going to give too much of the interview away is journalists need bands to write about and a lot of bands need journalists to write about them and I think a little bit like if you go back to when we talked about the Arctic Monkeys in series one and I came to Sheffield and there they were but you know it ultimately how many times did I actually meet the Arctic Monkeys probably a handful of times whereas John McClure I met when he was still an unsigned artist. He kind of knew of me through my coverage of the Arctic Monkeys, and I think we probably, I probably got to know him quite well before, way before he'd even formed Reverend the Makers. He was in a band called 1984. Uh, before that, he was in a band called Juden Suki, who I didn't see, but I saw him in, in kind of um, 1984. And yeah, he was Sheffield was one of those music scenes back in the mid noughties where you know if you worked in as a music journalist or and if you're in a band, it's very hard for you not to run into each other and kind of get to know each other, sort of. Um, Sort of to a degree. Well, really small scenes. So I'm from Nottingham, as we know, and the the music scene there was so tiny. You'd you'd know everyone whenever you go out. You'd bump into them. And And I think, as I wrote at the time, John was kind of like the glue that stuck that scene together. So, you know, he um, was friends of the Arctics, you know, when they were, well, the Arctic Monkeys were in a band with him called Jude and Suki, as I mentioned earlier, before they were ever in the Arctic Monkeys. You know, he worked with Alex on some of the material on... Arctic's first album um, and he's definitely been a kind of a lyrical kind of I wouldn't say inspiration but you know I think you can you can sense there's there's elements of the reverend in some of Alex's um, early lyrics but beyond that you know he got on with everyone he knew you know Milburn Bromhead's jacket even some of the, the the bands that weren't in the indie scene you know some of the guys who were in ska bands or rappers you know he he was a real we talk about this in the interview late he's a real kind of networker but not in like a cynical way just in a 
he's a very easy guy to get along with, you know. Good charisma. Yeah, you could say that, yeah. So when did you first see them live then? Yeah, so this, so as I said, I saw him in 1984, and then I think the first Reverend the Makers gig, and the fans will probably jump in and tell me I'm wrong here, was in was actually in Manchester in a fairly small club. Um, and uh, But then after, I mean, that, that would have been, what, 2006, something like that. But then beyond that, they played a lot in Sheffield. You know, they were... And they quickly kind of went through the venues. You know, they went from playing some of the smaller places to playing a place called The Plug, where they sold a thousand tickets uh, when they didn't have a record deal, so they'd really kind of grown to quite a big size, but way before record companies were even putting their 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 albums out. You know, their their demos actually a little bit like with the Arctic Monkeys. It was their demos that were circulating on message boards and MySpace, and you know, a world now that feels a long way away. Um, you know, they were they were quite known in the underground way before they got any coverage in the NME or the music press. Well, talk, yeah, talking about the NME, we, we were talking about this earlier, weren't we? And, and you said that it took you a long time to get them featured in the NME because people just weren't interested. No, so- they're, 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 yeah, there was a lot of cynicism within the enemy, and I think this remained kind of throughout the band's career about about putting them in. I think he was he was accused of being a bit of a kind of having sixth form politics and um and again we cover this in the interview later yeah. on you know he's kind of um repost to this and and um a little bit of maybe being seen as riding on arctic monkeys coattails when the irony was if you understood the story he was around you know a, a, at least at the same time as the arctics were on the way through it wasn't like he saw the arctics have a million selling debut album and go oh, i could have a bit of that you know he actually has maintained to me over the years that he was offered a lot of money to sign record deals as soon as the Arctics had a number one album and he turned them down because the labels essentially wanted him to photocopy what they were doing and and do do the same thing and that's not what he wanted to do musically. Mm. So what were they, you kind of touched on this a little bit in the interview but not really, Um, what was he like to go out with? Because I know you'd said that you went to an Oasis gig as well and you said that there's a bit of a mad night that followed that, like what was he, you know, you said he was a good networker but what was he actually like to go out with as a person? Not the Reverend, but as a as a person to be on as, a night as, out with, as John McClure. Though yeah. apparently they're, they're kind of one and the same <laughs> thing. I mean, he's, he's just he's a very gregarious character. He usually knows half the people. Um, you know, so he knows really half, half fun. The in the venue. I love going out with people like that because it just ends up being the most fun night. Because you meet new people, people that are kind of on the same wavelength as the the person you're out with, and therefore you. So. You know what happened. And I think the other thing I would say is that he he gave me a lot of access in a way that bands didn't. So I often went on, say, the tour bus to a gig. And I remember we went to Newcastle once. We went to a gig in London where there was no expectation that we'd get coverage or that I would uh, review the gig or anything like that. It was just we want you to kind of come down and hang out. Sometimes you'd be in the studio and say, We're recording some tracks. Just want to come down and I want you know and I want you to hear some of these songs again. Not because he expected a, a review to land in the enemy the next week, but just. I think I think there are some artists that understand it's important to have people around documenting what's going on. He I think he had that vision that kind of further down the line uh, that that he you know 10 years down the line he would have a career and actually he wanted someone there to kind of document what was going on and the smart bands um do that. But yeah, in terms of his his personality as I said he's he's just quite a gregarious, outgoing, uh, I guess kind of larger than life character is how I'd describe it. So I think that's a pretty good point for us to, to tee up the interview um, and play it. Um, I, When you came back and let me listen to it before, you, you looked really excited and actually I haven't seen you look this excited in, in quite a while and you went, that was an amazing interview, I've got some really good stuff there and he started talking about things that he's never spoken about before and he does say that in the interview. So 
well done on that. Um, obviously, it's probably a good thing because he, you know him and he feels very comfortable around you and, and um, it, it's it's great. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to you guys hearing it. Yeah, I mean, it was conducted on FaceTime. He has to do it on FaceTime for some reason. Uh, I was happy to do a Skype or, or a phone call or whatever. And, uh, yeah, we start out talking about... Um, you know the best of and obviously we wanted to get some of the information out about why now and that sort of thing but then yeah it it goes down some some interesting avenues so um yeah looking forward to to playing this out and people hearing it all right so uh, on the line i've got john mcclaw of uh, reverend the makers and i guess quite a momentous day for the band today your best of's just dropped it is me yeah and it's uh, it's very nice to speak to you i would say you were uh, um you're the, maybe one of the people to blame for Reverend of the Makers, aren't you? You know, you were you were one of the first people onto uh, onto the band. So yeah, guess I have to thank you in some way, Pop. Nice to speak to you again. Well, every journalist needs a band to write about, and every band needs a journalist to write about, and that's the way I always looked at it. Yeah, spaghetti and bolognese. Yeah, I suppose. So I mean, are you? Do you? Uh, do you miss them days? I, I guess I do, and I don't. I guess that's part of the subject of this podcast, in a way. I wouldn't be doing this podcast if maybe I didn't have some nostalgia for for kind of the old days when I could get away with spending three nights up with bands and out on, on tour and the things that you can't do when you've got when you've got four kids in tow but uh absolutely I, I, I guess my first question for you would be did you ever see that you'd be the sort of band you'd have a best of you know when you think back no. to the, the kind of punk rocker that you were 10-15 years ago no for the reason being that after the state of things and, and when I started being really really political the band kind of went right on its arse you know like we went down to like I mean we're playing Manchester Academy on this next tour we did on last tour it'll probably sell out but we went down to like playing to like Manchester Academy 3 300 people and it the arse dropped out of it massively you know we, we kind of fell into that great wave of bands that were just rejected and, and disbanded and whatever and we kind of got you know when indie became very much out of fashion for a while didn't it and um, we had a period of about two years in the middle where it were like we just weren't doing anything. Um, and then for whatever reason, well, not for whatever reason, I like to think we're good live and we've made some interesting records. It's just picked back up and up and up until over the space of a few albums until kind of we're at best place we've ever been in lots of ways now. Um, so, no, I didn't ever think we'd get to this point, but I'm glad that we have because it's. You know, I feel very honoured to have got to release a best of really and I was listening to it but then I'm like spent a lot of time eating a lot of my music that I've made in the past and I'm listening to it I'm thinking you know what actually we've made some good tunes man this is decent so I'm happy I mean yeah I was listening to it myself this morning it is banger after banger after banger I think that that's always that's always been your thing hasn't it when, yeah, you, when a, you're recording there was a great review this week actually in one of vinyl magazines and it said uh, for the heinous crime of making people jump up and down at festivals, people have often dismissed Reverend of the Makers as a lads band. They said, but the other side of the disc, because it's obviously got the uppers and then there's the downers on the best of, and they were like, oh, but there's, there's a lot more going on here than had previously been assumed. And I think, I like to think that's why we've got a lot more new fans in the last kind of five years, is because people realise we're not just them one-trick ponies that can do that, like, make you jump up and down at a festival thing, you know, uh, and that there's another side to us. Um, but it's good, man. I mean, life's, I can't grumble, Rick. You know what I mean? I'm 38 this year and I'm, I'm, I'm like about to head off on a, on a great tour and we're off to America next year. We're signing a record deal over there for the first time. So it's, uh, it's all right, mate. Can't grumble. 
And uh, and why now? Why are you releasing a best of now? Is there, is this, is this a, a kind of a bit of a full stop for a period of the band and 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 a because obviously you're not stopping. It's not like you're releasing a best of and see you later, you know. No, it's we're basically Joe who plays the bass. Obviously, we're in Millwood for a long time, and then has been with us for four albums. He's doing this solo thing, good cop, bad cop, and then Ed, our guitarist, is doing a solo thing. And I have been making these machines with the University of Sheffield, um, which I can't say too much about, but are going to map the musical future. And I'm going to do a solo project, which is overtly futuristic, which I've never really tried to do the future before. I've always done retro music, I guess you might call it. So I'm going to do a little solo thing, but no, certainly the band's not stopping, but you do have to periodically take a break because... We've done all them big festivals this year, and we had like literally all Fezzies, all everyone at the festival come to see us. Tramlines, Wine, or Kendall, all them, and it was great. But the problem is, you can't play them every year. You have to take a minute off sometimes. So the band are going to work in Europe and in America. Because um, that is being honest, that's my big frustration. Is we're not as popular as I, I wish we were in Europe or whatever, and we're not popular at all in America. So the band's going to do all that, and in the meantime, in this country, we're going to do some solo projects, which are, they're all kind of pretty different, everything that we're doing, so it's, it's still a good time, you know. And my kids actually saw you at Why Not Festival, get your head around that. I think when you met your me... Kids, your ne- kids saw us at Why how, how old is your eldest kid, Rick? Uh, ten. Oh my lord, that makes me feel impossibly old, that does, that your children are now going to watch us. But listen, there is a bit of that, you know, like, I've, what I've noticed this year is... I look out at the crowd and the, the babies, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to be the dad, I'm, I'm 38 this year, some of them are like 16, 17, 18, they're going nuts and they know every word, and we're getting on to that thing where like, I see it with Liam Gallagher's crowd to some degree, where I think a lot of these kids have been starved of bands, they've had a lot of music, but maybe not so many great bands, mm. um, and they just want to jump up and down to like, you know, in a field to, to stuff that's like, a bit, got a bit of a rock and roll vibe to it, um, so, listen, long may it continue, you know, let's have it. So, I think that's probably a good point, actually, where, you know, the last Martin to see you was a couple of months ago, why not? I want to rewind back to the first time that I saw you in 1984. I wish I could say I saw you in Jude and Suki, and uh, I heard you on another podcast the other day, The Two Shot, talking about how it was like a band, like Pugwall, and that's exactly yeah. what you said to me back in the day. But I've heard a couple of the tunes, I've heard that Man in the Moon tune, right? Oh, that that God, still Jesus. floats around yeah, somewhere. Awful, man. Uh, but 1984, I remember the first time I saw you was at the uh, was at the lead mill, uh, yeah. and you were like a man possessed. I think I even wrote uh, I wrote a review of another band at the time that mentioned you and just said they've got this singer who looks mad. He actually looks properly on it. <laughs> what are your memories of that time being in 1984 and, and those oh, sort of gigs around like then? Really, uh, we had this bass player. The main thing I remember about 1984 is that we got into this like gang fight. Um, it, it, the music it were, we're trying to be ganger for and make like angular political post punk I guess and we were I, we were all right I mean we weren't terrible but we weren't brilliant at the same time but um, like I were doing my poetry thing as well and basically we had this night where we, we used to put gigs on with the Arctic Monkeys and other Sheffield bands and it erupted into a gang fight we used to have this bass player called Carl Kelly who were like this really hard looking raster lad who had this gold tooth on a distinct memory in 1984 he's in the Arctic Monkey song Certain Romance when he talks about fighting with pool cubes in your hand well that's about that night and Carl got knocked unconscious and I remember him like scrabbling round looking for his gold tooth on the floor mm. um, but it went, it went a bit rough and ready 
guess like it was a very fertile period for, for guitar music and for music in the county of Yorkshire there were a lot of bands uh, and it was just a good time but for whatever reason it was never quite the right thing to do 1984 I always felt constrained by having to like justify my decisions to three other people who maybe didn't share my vision and so I started the reverend thing as a vehicle so I could be in charge and even though there is a band and the band contribute heavily to what we do it's my thing and I, it was a bit of reason I'd done Rev instead of 1984 so, so I could be like a despot basically mm. and be, I'd be like in control of it but yeah for whatever reason people seem to like me more than the band in, in a weird way and so the Arctic Monkeys manager well he weren't either of us manager at the time he was just this little bloke who used to come down and watch us and he was like I want to manage you to do a solo kind of a solo thing this, this is Jeff Baradell we're talking about now yeah, isn't it so yeah Jeff, Jeff took us and the monkeys on roughly around the same time um, and he wanted me to do a thing on my own which in retrospect was probably the right thing to do you know and that's how Rev were born really um, out of that kind of period because he, he like you had come down to them gigs and be like front man of that band's mad I love him I want to get him to do something um, and that's how it that's how it came, came about really and then off we went I just started making these other kind of tunes, these like vaguely mm. electro tunes. Um, this is the thing I wish people understood about our music is where the where the place where what the Arctic Monkeys do meets that earlier tra- Sheffield tradition of Human League and Cabaret Voltaire and Evan Seventeen. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, so I know exactly Sheffield's, what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Sheffield's known for that electro synthesizer thing, but it's also known for that Jarvis Alex lyrical thing. And I guess where the pl- point at which them things meet a bit, maybe. Um, and because the British music industry can't quite separate things in a pigeonhole, they wrongly put us in that Manchester box. But arguably, Sheffield had that electronic thing first, really. You know, so I started trying to make them kind of tunes a bit. If, uh, if I'm honest, I, I was guilty of putting you in that box as well at times. I said that you were like a mix between Manchester and uh, and probably bits of Sheffield and then bits of the, the lyrical thing as well. Yeah, I remember doing it's, that it's myself. Like a, I think another thing that sticks in my mind from when you started out, and again, the, the point of this interview really for me is some of those stories that people maybe don't know or have forgotten. You were selling out the plug in Sheffield, 500 capacity, before you even had a record deal. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, we didn't, we done big room, a thousand uh, prior to having a record deal. And it were real, like, we're, we're like, of that, we're that the first might of the MySpace bands, aren't we? Us, the monkeys, libs to some degree, but a lot of us lot come around because of MySpace and, and Early, very early social media, uh, which is kind of impossible now because there's so much social media that it sort of dilutes the point. But at that point, there weren't that many avenues on social media, so it's still you could get a bit of a vibe, you know. And we, we got like essentially popular without the aid of radio and without the aid of, of the music press, really, apart from your good self. Um, they were not it was just us, you know. And it, I feel very proud of that because it's been a thing that's 
continue. I mean, for a brief time, the music industry liked us, right, around the heavyweight time, and then quickly went off us, and we've existed and come about largely in spite of the music industry. And I love that, because I think that's quite punk, in it, you know? Yeah, and I was going to go on to that, because I think, again, I was at kind of the eye of that storm in a way where... I begged them to put a feature in, you know, put begged to do a radar feature, begged them to yeah. do, and then when that happened, it seemed that the the the, the kind of narrative turned more towards the political stuff, the instigate debate stuff, which I think was both a kind of curse and blessing for yourself in a way. In that, on the one hand, it really did put the flag in the sand of what you stood for and you know and where your head was at at the time, but I think a lot of it was very misunderstood, and I think I think that was the challenge that you had, and then that bled into how people felt about the music. Well, the thing people don't. A lot of people don't know is that like a lot of the political the political stuff was aimed at the the British foreign policy, right? I had an Iraqi girlfriend, and I'd, I'd, I'd been out with this girl for six years, and like her dad's village had had cluster bombs exploding in it. Uh, you know, her family lived in Sadr City during the, the the bombing, the shock and awe bombing campaign. So the political thing came from a very personal and a very personal distress on my part, right? And yeah, I got put in that political box. And on one hand, it destroyed the band because the band, as I explained to you earlier, had a real, like, the radio won't play records no more. So this is at a time when being quite popular to be political now is quite cool, but back then it wasn't at all. It was frowned upon, and therefore the music press turned on us and the radio turned on us, and it knackered the band for a long time. Uh, but in the longest period of time, I think... We've come round to where, like, a point where people are like, hang about, this is a principled band who have made good music. And it's probably been one of the reasons we've been able to survive and carry on and have a career is because it's not vacuous nonsense that there's a reason for the band existing and the songs are about something. And so you come full circle to the last election where I got Jeremy Corbyn out on stage. Bear in mind, people had said terrible things like John McClure's music belongs in the 80s, John McClure's politics belong in the 80s. I got Corbyn out on stage, and that's where the old Jeremy Corbyn chant starts, right, when I get him out on stage. And yeah, yeah, remember it well. And then fast forward a little bit, another year on, and we're playing the Labour thing, and Corbyn introduces us on stage this time, and he says, I'm the man that changed the face of the last election, which when your politics have been written off 10 years previously as like six-form nonsense feels enormously satisfying and I feel like in the I lost the battle but I won the war, won the war. Yeah. I'm still here I'm still making music I'm still playing pretty big venues I'm still getting to make a living out of music and do well out of music and I think it's alright you know it's alright to have lost that battle because in the in the longer scheme of things we're here and we're doing it you know you know what else I put it down to as well I remember in a lot of the interviews we used to have back in the day we'd talk about how you liked having that hip-hop vibe around the way that you worked and that you were constantly collaborating. I was going to come on to this as well about, you know, often you'd invite me down to Two Fly, the studio down there, and you'd have someone else in, whether it was Big Steve, the Rasta, whatever it was. And I wonder if part of the reason that you've had that staying power is that not through some sort of careerist, cynical way, but you've networked very well. You've got a network of musicians, you know, the Noel Gallagher's of this world, Damon Albarn. Every time I speak to you, you're off to work with someone else, you know, Libertines, Pete, Carl that, you know, it feels like a lot of the music industry, maybe if the press didn't have you back, certainly you had enough musicians who, as a peer, viewed you as one of their peers and, and wanted to support you. I wonder if, if that played a part. Well, I, I like 
to think other musicians appreciate that I'm uncompromising and that I do what the fuck I wanted and that I've never bowed or scraped really to the industry and I think musicians probably respect that I, I think to some degree and so I have had a lot of respect off my musical peers and I've worked with a lot of them yeah I think um, that's what that's what I do it for really because I could have all great best reviews in the world I could have a number one I could have billions of pounds but when other people who you dig said fucking love your record John or I love that thing you said or I love that project you did you just think that's what it's about man you know what I mean so this thing I'm working on next year the futuristic thing I've told a lot of musicians about it already and like some of them are just like that's the most insane thing I've ever heard in ever and they love it and I think like I'd like to think people appreciate what I do you know what I mean but equally like I've upset so many people in industry, Rick. I'm blacklisted from certain radio stations, like literally not allowed to be on certain radio stations. Mm. And certain colleagues of yours from the past, like, I wouldn't even say dislike me, like, viscerally hate me. Um, and it's the, the great shame of that is if I could sit with these people and talk to them in a room, I'm sure they'd think I were all right and I'd think they were all right and we'd get on. But because of the nature of the music industry, everything's reduced to, like, snappy sound bites and little Twitter stories and whatever, people have got a lot of people outside of the music like outside of musicians the, the journalists and the, the label bosses and stuff, they think I'm some horrible bastard and it, it does upset me that because I think, I wish I could make them people understand that I'm not this like you know, awkward tosser who they think I am, do you know what I mean? The thing I said about the enemy not being scared to put black faces on the front cover were, were completely valid and true and and years later people have come to me and went you know what you you opened you by saying that you opened the door to lots of black artists being able to be on the end being the enemy and for the enemy to, to move away from that guitar thing but of course nobody knows this and i'm the one that served the sentence by getting trashed for for however long and it's you know what i mean it's hard mate because i've had to rebuild my career back up from these things do you understand what i mean but i got threatened with legal action I got canned, it genuinely ruined my career and my life for about four years. You know what I mean? And like, my second album, he's, he's, he's dead good. He's dead good, Rick. And it, you know, and it, listen, the review of it, I think they give it zero out of ten. Mm. As, a, I, as, a, as a revenge attack. You know what I mean? It's not a zero out of ten. It might not be a ten out of ten, but it's like... and I'd, 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 I'm going to give myself a bit of credit here, but had I been like less determined or whatever or maybe it's less talented or whatever that would have finished us it nearly did finish us we went down to playing 300 in Manchester only just being able to sell lead me in Sheffield yeah like we're so we can do like four or five you know we're playing two and a half thousand in Manchester next week it's, mm. we've managed to build it back up out of sheer perseverance and I have to say I've got a new I've had a new manager ever since the second album who's helped me build my career back up there but like for the, for the heinous crime of telling the truth, it nearly ruined me, but it, you know what I'm saying? No, I'm, no I'm, absolutely. And I've never, ever, ever told this story to anyone. Like, obviously I talked about it at the time, but there weren't Twitter that, like, back then, so it was just, no one ever knew this story. This is kind of the first time I've ever really told it to anyone. Well, do, do you remember that night we went out to see Oasis at the uh, Sheffield Arena? It was on the, one of the last Oasis tours. Yeah. And I think we're back at your flat probably about three, four, five in the morning. And uh, and I remember saying to you that night, are you sure you want to carry on with music? Because I think 
this potentially isn't good for you, if you know what I mean. I think I, I could see what was going on at the time, probably even more than you could, because I was on the inside of it. I was in the, I was on the press side, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But I guess you've probably proved me wrong in that you did persevere and you did carry on the right thing. Look at where, look at, look at where you are now. You're still here. You're still fighting. Well, the other problem I had is that, with the exception of you and maybe a couple of other people, the vast majority of the music press were very privileged middle class kids, and so they viewed the kitchen sink working class subject matter of my first album as an alien life form you know as an experience that didn't apply to them and they thought I was one of them some rich kid who were looking at working class in life in some sort of voyeuristic way but I weren't I was writing songs about the village I grew up in or about Sheffield you know and that was my reality at the time and so you've got a bunch of posh kids looking essentially down the nose at a life that they don't understand and a lot of that fed into it and it just like for whatever reason I became like the enemy no, I don't mean the band enemy, I mean like as in the enemy, you know, public enemy number one. And, and they all had it in for me and I think there were, a de- I, would, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that there was a deliberate attempt by some people in that organisation to put my band out of business. They tried as hard as they could to ruin us, you know, and I think like, I'm fucking still here. And this next thing I'm going to do is going to make them look like dinosaurs. I can't talk about it too much, but it's mm. going to mm. make them look like literally like they come from another century because it's so futuristic and forward thinking and um, I'm moving forward mate and it, it, but it does hurt me because I think it, it saddens me because I feel like I've lost a lot of time, I lo- lost a lot of years do you know what I mean? I feel like I've, I've like I was in my prime and I got knocked like onto the floor and it, listen, it, my mental health suffered greatly I'm not going to lie to you, at times I've felt so depressed and on medication and all these things and again that. i remember this i remember seeing this 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 is why i was worried back in the day if i was honest. yeah because because i were only ever trying to like represent for people and advocate for people whether that be <clears throat> my girlfriends in family who were iraqi who were seeing the country ripped to bits you know and and i were only ever trying to like do what i saw as being the moral right thing to do and for whatever reason, all these posh kids at this newspaper in London decided, like, like, of all the ills in the world, I was the worst thing in the world. And it just felt so deeply, deeply unfair. And, like, I defy anybody to, like, you know, not not let that affect them. You know, mm. and I don't... Mm. Like I said, I don't talk about it, but that's what happened with Reverend Makers. And even to this day, there are people within the music industry who think we're so shit and think we're awful and think we're the worst band ever. And they've never heard a single note of my fifth album, which is wonderful, or my sixth album. From it. They've only ever really heard heavyweight champion of the world, and they think that's what we are, even now. And listen, slowly, incrementally, you change people's minds, don't you? But, like, if I was to go into the mind of Lauren Laverne or... Quite an empty place, I imagine. It's, it's awful, man, because they, they just think with this thing. And I, how do I, how do I say? You know, if you actually listen to the records and listen to what I actually say in interviews, I'm not that person you think I am. Death, know, Death of a King being the not, classic example, right? Say again. Death of a King is not a lad band album by a million miles. Well, it's. I mean, it's, it's Thai psychedelia. Exactly. Exactly. You know what I mean? And I think like. More so, mirrors. I mean, my manager said to me at one point, he said, Listen, John, your name's that, it's, it's mud in the music industry, yeah? And it's that bad that you could literally release Revolver 
and scarf days on the same day and no one would give a shit. And that that perception persists to this day. But the difference now is, Rick, there isn't really any music press. There's, hard, there's hardly any music press out there that matters. It's completely irrelevant in lots of ways. And so there's been this great democratising movement, haven't there, among social media where I guess you're only as good as your social media and your tunes and your gigs. And in some ways I resent that because I think John Lennon, Bob Marley, Bob Dylan, whoever it be, Joe Strummer, <laughs> Chuck D, they won't have to worry about Twitter back in the day. They won't have to worry about Instagram. They just concentrate on the music. But on flipping mm. that, I think, if you're an interesting character and you've got interesting things to say and you've got, pardon me, good live gigs and stuff, it's there for you, innit? You're only, you know, there's no tangible advantage. Obviously, if you're on a major record label, they can target, spend ads on you and all this bullshit, but it's a bit of a free-for-all at the minute, so it enables people like me who are very DIY and just kind of operate under their own steam. It enables people like me to kind of operate you know have, a, have an existence and have a career and, and i like that I, th- I think i think the future of the music press is probably a whole whole other podcast john and i'm aware that uh you want to get to the gym shortly so we'll wrap up in a minute i guess i guess the last thing i'd want to know is you know at this we've kind of covered in half an hour you know a, a potted history of the band from you know 1984 to where you are now and the best of coming out and you said that band are taking a little bit of a break to do your own things and you've got this scientific thing i think you should have a word with uh with Sam from Late of the Pier, because he's working on something similar. When we interviewed him about a year ago, he's working on some sort of future music device thing. So maybe you could, you no, could, up, you could yeah, up yeah, it with him. I've been very. What's been most mental this week is I've been talking to Brian Eno, who, who does loads of stuff in this world, and uh, he's coming to see me on Thursday. He's getting trained up to Sheffield, and he's coming to look at my machines. So I'm hopeful that, like, because I think the music industry has become very. Uh, dull and a bit beige and a bit samey mm. and it's and I've contributed to it because I have you make music thinking like let's try and sound like nuggets or let's try and sound like talking eggs or gang of four or you reference everything with ref you know you, you do everything with reference to the past um, and I'm, I'm kind of thinking nah yeah I'm going to do something that's like militantly futuristic so anything that's old is bad and anything that's new is good and um, I'm about two weeks I've been able to make a song with this but already I'm I've got like you know an artificial intelligence machine that's got the ability to write lyrics so like last week I took some like AI lyrics to Ed Sheeran and I said give them to him and he's like this is fucking weird he's like where's the humanity in this I went there ain't any and I'm like that's where I see music going in the future is to kind of full automation um and I think collaborating with artificial intelligence and machines is is the next logical step for me, and I'm excited by that. Rather than balking at it and being scared by it, because there's a lot of them like real music wankers around, didn't there? It's not real music, and I think now nah, rather than because ultimately, eventually, Spotify are going to use this to create algorithmic dance music playlists for the gym that don't involve humans at all right mm, mm. so I'm thinking let's do something artistic with this stuff in the immediate future before it's used inevitably by the industry for, for the dark arts you know so there are artists who are already pushing forward in that field there's a girl called Holly Herndon on 4AD who makes that kind of music but I'm interested in how that, that technology can be harnessed to write songs because nobody's really writing songs with it 
and I'm very, very close to making a breakthrough with it. It's a bit like being Neil Armstrong, you know what I mean? It's uncharted territory. If you, but, if you uh, believe you went to the moon, but again, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> that's another podcast, mate. That's so when uh, w- when do you think fans will be able to hear this music then? I mean, it's massively exciting, but when... Before, you know, you, you take Christmas, if I've got my way. So new, you reckon there'll be new music before Christmas? But more yeah, realistically, like, a more traditional release next year, maybe? Yeah, we're, we're, there's, there's talk about setting up a, a label to, specifically to release this kind of music in Sheffield. So I'm hoping that might provide a bit of a fillet for another scene in Sheffield, actually, because we need some in Sheff at minute just to galvanise us a bit. So there's lots of really interesting plans afoot. And by next year, I think there's going to be like a lot of exciting stuff, you know, and from younger artists, not necessarily from me, even from other artists who are younger than me. Um, so it's, I think Sheffield's one of them cities, like, everybody takes their eye off it, and then every 10, 15 years, we just spit out some of dead cool, so we're about to do that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about future, Rick, I don't fear it, I'm, 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 want, I want, I'm, you know, I want to shag it. <laughs> it. Good place to finish. Well, anyway, back off to the gym, heavyweight, still the heavyweight champion. Yeah, and uh, well, yeah, not, not so anyway. Actually, I'm a bit slim these you, days. You've slimmed so down. I've lost a bit of timber. Rick. You're not I'm doing sure, keto, sure. are you? Yeah, I've got to. You got to do it, mate. Nobody wants to be fat, down, do they? You know what no. I mean? Anyway, cheers, John. We'll uh, we'll we'll have you on the podcast again soon. I'm sure. God we bless will. you, Rick. Nice okay. to talk to you, cheers, man. mate. Good to speak to you. Well, I'll be honest, as I always am on this podcast. I'm always nervous when you say this. I know you are. You are always nervous when I say I'm, I'll be honest. He said something interesting in there. He said that he they got pitched as a lads band. Um, mm. Yeah, I sort of agree that they did. However, you know I don't like lad bands. I actually really liked Reverend and the Makers. I really, really liked them. Um, I just thought they had that. I, I thought they had that charisma as a band, um, that excitement and that gritty realness that was being able to be turned into kind of an upbeat kind of musical way. I don't know... Um, I know what you mean. The, 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 some the of the instruments they been... used that were really different to the other indie bands that were around at the time. So I know you mentioned the whole kind of Arctic Monkeys, Promise Jacket, um, the Libertines, all those bands, they, they sound... Reverend the Makers sound way, way different and almost quite... And, you know, he's talked about futuristic music, almost a bit futuristic for the time. Um, so I always really liked them. I also love the fact that he's doing something on the future of music. I, I, I really, really want to, you know, hear more about that when he's when he's done it um, and perhaps get him back on again in the future. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, for me, I, I have in, in, you know, in print described him as a bit of a visionary and been laughed at by my editors for... For saying that, but when you, I suppose for me, when you look back on his career and you think about the political involvement he had with the Instigate debate stuff, that came way before any of the kind of Occupy stuff was happening, or you know any of the kind of recent political stuff around you know climate and politics and and that sort of thing. So I think you know in that sense he's often ahead of the curve. So you know he's talking about making AI music now. It sounds utterly bonkers to me. I've no idea what AI music is going to sound like, but I've 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 no doubt that. He'll have, he'll have kind of hit on something. Well, an AI machine that has the ability to write lyrics. I love that as well. So he said he took it to Ed Sheeran, who really is mates with everyone, isn't he? Um, where he said, Ed apparently said, where's the humanity in this? Which I found very interesting. I did, did, a, little, did a little giggle at that. I wonder if we could get a, a quote from Ed at some point on, on mm. that. Um, He's welcome to come on the show. Well, you are welcome, more than welcome, Ed, to come on the show. Um, and I loved him saying, 
it's a oh did you say a bit like being Neil Armstrong <laughs> I think he did say that oh no did he say that what did yeah, he said that yeah, he said he feels like Neil Armstrong he yeah. said he feels like Neil Armstrong that is a bold statement if I've ever heard one um another thing that I picked up on as well when he was talking about how they emerged and it was around the MySpace band era um and you two did talk about the fact that it's something we've talked about as in me and you Rick we've talked about in, in the past on on the music landscapes day and how much more different it is for bands to to emerge these days when you know back then if you got onto myspace very early social media times it was a bit easier to get discovered i think and you didn't really need the radio um or the or necessarily the music press because social media at that time allowed you a platform to kind of do it yourself diy and it's, it's gone so far over and beyond now that it's really there's so much noise out there. So how does one get noticed today using the, by just using social media? And I think he did talk about the big record labels who've got kind of money to put paid spend behind this are the ones that are going to do a bit better than kind of the smaller bands. It's interesting you mentioned that because I feel like MySpace, in a way, it democratised that, didn't it? it? Whereas now, obviously, there are numerous platforms that bands can put their material out on SoundCloud, Facebook, um, you know, LinkedIn, even probably YouTube. Um, there's probably platforms I'm not even thinking about. We transfer maybe even, but you know, MySpace is a platform where suddenly everyone everyone was on there, and you know, you could look at a band that you liked, and then look at who was in their top six or seven or eight, ten friends or yep. whatever. Yep. And through that, you would then discover, well, oh, actually, there's another band that I really like here. And I think when when MySpace, you know, it, it burned brightly and quickly. I know you know this because you work there. We've discussed this on did, previous yes. podcasts. Um, you know, it. I think once that kind of fell away, that kind of democratization sort of fell away as well. Yeah, no, completely agree. It's a it's a strange landscape, and I'm really keen. I think I keep bringing this up in every episode because it's something that I'm really, really keen to get, get under the skin of. I'd really love to get somebody from Spotify on the podcast to talk about what they think, although they might be slightly biased. But I have been to an event before where uh, a guy from Deezer was talking about it. Obviously, Deezer, if you don't know, it's a very kind of similar platform to Spotify that's more popular in kind of European areas, I think, than, than the UK. Um, but yeah, no, I, I loved that, and I loved the fact that he he talked about that. And, uh, I guess he's probably a bit kind of lucky in that sense that he start they they formed around the time when they were able to use a platform like MySpace. Now it might be a different story for them if they if they came out today. Um, one thing I did love is that you sound so much more northern talking to a northerner. <laughs> I have to say, I have to have a bit of a laugh at, uh, laugh at you about that. And um, why is that? Do you think? So it's not something I personally notice. However, having done English to the to A level, right? So you know, I do know a little bit about the English language. There is something about where you mirror, you mirror the way that other people talk. So apparently, when you, if you, if you're, in, you know, say like I'm from Manchester, apparently if I'd go back to Manchester within a couple of days, I'd be talking more Mancunian because you kind of soak it up. Yeah, and keep yeah, in mind yeah, as true. well, my accent is supposed to sound more Yorkshire than Manchester at the moment, and he's from Yorkshire, so. Okay. Maybe maybe that's not such a shock, but yeah, not something I'd noticed myself. I mean, it wasn't massive. It was just it just made me laugh because some of the words you kind of drop the drop the letters from the end of them and stuff like that. That was funny. But generally, I think he sounds great. He, he you can really tell that he's riled up at the moment. A lot of the stuff that he was saying, he's he's really passionate about kind of what's happened to both him and the band. He's obviously gone away and he's worked really really hard as has have the the rest of the band, I'm sure. Um, but it it really sounds like he's ready to come back with a bang um, and I'm looking forward to seeing what that might look like. It's having a bit of a renaissance um, 
a renaissance now. Maybe it is because the music press doesn't exist as much. People aren't as led by kind of the bias of, of what they read. And I say this as someone who worked in the music press for for 10 years. And actually, you know, even, and, and I wouldn't put them in the same bracket as this band, but bands like the Wombats and Pigeon Detectives, who are both around at the same time, you know, the, the Wombats still sell out quite big arenas, weirdly. The Pigeon Detectives are still going and, and drawing big crowds at... At festivals, so there is there is a bit of a renaissance for some of these kind of um, mid noughties bands, but they're all are all quite disparate sounding. That's the key I'd want to say here. You know, Cortinas too. You know, Cortinas we were on the last week's episode. Again, a band that have survived from this era. You know, are still are still drawing bigger crowds than than they ever have. And I, th- I think probably the finally the most interesting thing for me with this interview is that you know he's looking at putting looking at putting new music out potentially by. The end of this year, you know, this robots. AI, this AI robot music. This is awesome. I can't wait for this. I really, you need to, you need to get on it, Rick. You need to get some some samples from him so we can listen. So perhaps, a, yeah. perhaps when some of that material comes out, we'll uh, we'll get John back on the show to talk about it. How's yeah, that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'd like that. Would you? What would you like, there, guys? We always want to hear from you whether you'd like that or not. So I guess on that subject, um, how can people get in touch with us? They can get in touch with us via email. So we are at demotapespod at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter uh, at demotapespod. And then we have our own personal accounts as well if you wanted to have a look at what we're getting up to on a day-to-day basis. I am I am Sarah Jane Kemp. That's just to remind yourself <laughs> just of who to, you are. Yeah. I am Sarah Jane Kemp on Instagram. And, and Rick I'm is uh, Rick underscore J underscore Martin. That's on Twitter. Twitter on yeah. Twitter. Don't Rick's bother Twitter, me on Instagram. Rick's Twitter, I'm Instagram. That says a lot about us. That works for me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we hope you've liked this episode. If you want to go back and listen to all of the other episodes we've done, you can listen on iTunes and Spotify. Um, and as always, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating. It really does help with our promotion of the pod. Because we're 15 episodes in now, aren't we? Is, am 15. I right? 15. I'm pretty sure this is episode 15. It yeah, is. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are we are cruising. Um, and we've got some really cool stuff lined up for you as well. We've had a few uh, couple of things confirmed recently as well that I'm very, very excited about. So keep your ear uh, yeah. to the ground on that one. I mean, as we said, we're switching up the formats a little bit. We're switching up the types of guests that are coming on. Obviously, today was a bit of a quite traditional episode with an interview with, with an artist. But yeah, um, really excited to uh, to put out some of these kind of new episode angles and new ideas that we've been having. So yeah, looking forward to that. Cool. All right. Until next time. Bye, guys. See you later. Bye.